They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk music. I say Thanos ain't shit, but a purple punk bitch. I said Thanos ain't shit, but a purple punk bitch. Avengers assemble. Avengers assemble. Avengers assemble. Avengers assemble. What's up? What's up? What's up, everybody? Today, hey. Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. I ain't choose to be a player, but the game chose me. Been writing about music for more than 20 years. You can catch up on my stuff at rnbeing.com. I'm the author of four books, um, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, uh, a memoir about working through grad school as a stripper hoe called All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. My novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love, which is called Who's Your Daddy? And my forthcoming special, A Critical Meditation on the Life and Artistry of Janet Jackson. And on that very important note... um. Make sure y'all watch Janet be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this Saturday on HBO at 8. So, you know, put that in your little DVRs and whatnot. Um, so let's just jump right in this week because there's a whole lot going on. I'm just back from seeing a screening of Avengers Endgame. And, um, you know, well, not just back because I had to stop the restroom first because that movie was more than three hours long. So I had to pee for a good 15 minutes before I could even sit down and think about doing a podcast. But anyway, um, so that's just as to say, y'all be prepared. But it was three hours. Very well worth it. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, I'm a Marvel fan from way back in the day. And um I just loved it. And I walked in just thinking, you know, how are they going to do this? How are they going to tie up all these characters, you know, all these and give each character a satisfying arc? How are they going to tie up all these threads? I mean, I was kind of walking into it just not thinking that they couldn't do it, but just acknowledging what a creative challenge, you know, the whole deal was. And I have to say that they did it. They really did it. And it's really remarkable. Um... From a creative point of view, I mean, I just constantly am just, you know, I'm, it's kind of corny, but I can just say I constantly marvel at the Marvel. You know, I constantly marvel at how the MCU movies manage to have great acting, emotional acting, you know, really emotional scenes, exciting action that drives the plot forward. I mean, they really do the damn thing. They have the formula down, and I, I think they probably keep that formula held tight like you know the coke formula or something so i just really loved it and the only thing i would say um you know again no spoilers here i would say that the more marvel the more mcu movies that you've seen the more you will enjoy it and get all the references for instance i would definitely recommend catching captain marvel if you can i know a lot of people slept on this i was one of the sleepers i didn't even see the shit till yesterday um, I was the only damn person in the theater, but it was really, really fun. Like, I really wish somebody had told me um, how fun it was, and I wish I had then gone to see the movie so then I could have then told you guys how fun it was so that you could have seen it, you know, on the good IMAX and everything and not at the, you know, smelly little small the theater that they put stuff in. Um, after they've run its course. But it is a really fun movie. It's set in the 90s, so you get all sorts of um, 90s realness with the locations and the music. And I, like I said, I loved it. It's definitely worth seeing. But, it, you know, you would definitely get the movie. Um, you will get into the movie even if you haven't seen it. But it's it's just one of those things that would help thread, a, you know, put the ties together. And there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get because I haven't seen every old body's film. You know what I mean? Like I've seen me a couple of Thors. I've seen me like an Ant Man. I don't even know if I saw the Ant Man Wasp. Um, you know, I've kept up on the Avengers, but I missed one Avengers. So I mean, my whole thing is spotty too, and I really enjoyed it. But you know, there were times when people were just like getting their laugh on. 
at some references that I didn't even get. So like I said, the more you're into MCU, the more you will love it. But in general, I just think it's a fantastic um, movie worth seeing. You know, you get every aspect of what you want from the film, the emotions, the comedy, the drama, the real action action. So um, I think it is worth it. But bitch, control your liquid intake about three hours before the start time. Cut back all liquids, you know, whatever, because you will be sitting in there. And if you're like me, if you're a man of a particular age, I'm just saying control your liquid intake because you do not want to be that person getting up in front of all sorts of people, you know, passing them, getting all obscuring their view during a climactic scene. You do not want to be that guy. So control your liquids. Um, anyway, moving quite along to another um cinematic thrill of the week i finally got to see the queen of souls amazing grace um a film i've been waiting for for at least the over well over a decade since i even knew it existed um having been a a fan of the album ever since you know i was a little boy and if you don't know, this is a film of Aretha Franklin's two gospel shows that really church services. You know, it's not like James Cleveland, um, who's the choir director in the film. He makes it quite clear that it's not a, like a rock concert. It's a church service where she's performing gospel songs um, to be recorded. And it took place on January 13th and 14th, 1972, at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in L.A., and the recording of the live album, it was recorded for the live album, Amazing Grace, which was later released. And this was at a time in her career, I mean, she had been had hits. So it wasn't as if she wasn't, this was a time when she had that little bit of breathing space. Like she had made the money for the label. Everything was good, good. Um, she was known as the Queen of Soul. So she really did, this was a perfect moment for her to be able to stretch and do something kind of different. And in a way, she almost kind of had to do something because she'd had the hits, you know, Never Loved a Man, Do Right Woman, Respect, Dr. Feelgood, Chain of Fools, and on and on and on. But most of her albums were just basically up to that point were just like collections of singles, essentially, you know, with some covers thrown in and everything like that. Um, even the label head Jerry Wexler said, you know, you could basically put mix and match the songs among the albums and it really wouldn't matter because they weren't really albums in a thematic way. So, and that was kind of beginning to happen within the music industry, within soul, with people like Marvin Gaye doing thematic albums and things like that. Um, he had put out, um, what's going on a year prior to when she did the, um, the Amazing Grace album. So I think that was kind of in the mix as well. Um, and I really did not know what to expect going into the film. I had always wanted to see the film, but at the same time, I was so familiar with the album, every note, every riff, every everything, um, that I just didn't know how it would be seeing it um performed and for me i guess I, I haven't even really listened to the original album for decades because um ever since atlantic in 1999 they released the they released um the complete recordings which is just both nights the complete recordings of both nights so that is actually what i'm the most familiar with now so i don't even know which takes are on the original album and which uh, so that was kind of new to me too just wondering what i was going to hear and if because there's a lot of overlap and there's some takes of the songs that I like better than others. So I didn't really know, like I said, I didn't know what to expect, but it was like a kind of Christmas not knowing what to expect. You know, you run downstairs, you know that some good shit's going to be under the tree. You just don't know what. So um, that was kind of how I was going into it. And I have to say that it was just, just on a very, just instant level, just be, just watching such a historic um, event that meant so much to me, just watching it take place. I mean, there was a sense of just awe of, I can't believe that I'm seeing this. I, I can't believe that I have this window into the making of this great work of art that has meant so much to my life. But I think the most affecting part about it was just looking at Aretha's face. There were so many um, close-ups of her face and just 
seeing her making the decisions in real time about how she's phrasing something, when to punctuate a certain word, and then just when to let go and just wail and let it all go. And you can see the you can see her thinking, you can see her making these creative decisions. And that's just such a um it's such a privilege. Um, I'm so grateful to be able to see that because it's it is she's a genius. It's she's a genius in the way that she thinks through the songs and the way that she decides what to she's not just wailing through the whole thing like when does a song need an emotional release when does it need to be held back and then in just in her messaging how is she interpreting the song so that she wants to get a certain message across meaning how which words is she punctuating all of that you just see it right there on the screen and that's just so powerful watching a genius at work and at the same time now, I can see why, given her um, self-consciousness and her control issues, I can kind of see why she didn't want the film released, why she didn't like it, because she does come across as very, very vulnerable. And um, that makes it all the more, more incredible to see, because you never really got to see Aretha like that in public. But you really do see her vulnerable, stripped down and raw, and just that kind of creative moment. I know I have that when I'm... Um, in the midst of writing a book or just that this is this moment in the creative process where you have this idea of something great that you want to create and you th think it's going to happen and you're at the start line of it, but you don't really know for a fact that it's going to happen. You have faith, you have faith in your creativity, you have faith in your Lord and all that's all that that you think it's going to happen, but at that first moment, you don't know. It could be a disaster. So you see that in her face. You see her, you know, she's ready, she's prepared, she's done all she has to do, all she could possibly do to prepare for the performance. And it literally was just in God's hands. And you see that sort of surrender in her face right before she's going to perform. And just being able to witness those moments, um... Are, it's just are, it's just magical. There's no other way to describe it. And the film is filmed in that wonderfully grainy um, color documentary style of the 60s and 70s. It reminded me, the sort of the color of it reminded me of like the Maisel Brothers, Grey Gardens, um, and Give Me Shelter. That's the Rolling. That's one of my favorite concert films. That's about the Rolling Stones' infamous Altamont concert, where a young black man was killed by some hell's angels that they had hired for security. So you, this is gritty, um, this gritty, grainy color that is complete opposite of Technicolor and everything. And it, it sort of made me wish. Um, of course, I love Beyonce's Homecoming, and I talked about that all last. Um, week, but it sort of made me wish that instead of using those Instagram filters, Instagram-ish filters, I'm sure they weren't actual Instagram filters, but using that Instagram look for some of the things in Homecoming, I almost wish he had just actually found the vintage film and the vintage film cameras and done that because I think that that would have been a really, um, I think that would have been an interesting look. And because the one thing that my, you know, and these are just minor quibbles about homecoming. So don't come at me with the beehive and all that kind of stuff. I'm beehive for life, beehive for days. This, I'm just hoping that all of that Instagram looking footage in homecoming is going to age well. Where I think that if it had been done with these kind of cameras, that it would have definitely aged well. You know, I just don't want us to look back at homecoming in. 20 years ago, wow, it's a lot of Instagram looking stuff and nobody, and we're really off that. So neither here nor there. Let's get into the, um, what, you know, makes the film is the music. And so these are just some of my favorite musical moments. Um, holy, holy. I mean, that is always been my favorite song from the album. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the second night take is on the original album but the first night take is the one I like the most and that's the one that's in the film and I just just the harmonies um and that piano that dun, 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 just starting things off it just grabs my soul right off 
the bat. And of course, that's the first number on the complete recordings, but I think that's toward the end of the album, on the original album. But anyway, and the lyrics where she's, um, you know, we should, I just, when she says, we should believe in each other's dream, Jesus left us a long time ago, and he said he would return, but he left us a book to believe in, and in it, we've got a whole lot to learn. That is, and that being a Marvin Gaye song, that is really her way, I feel, of kind of connect. She does this throughout the whole album, from everything from the cover to everything, but she's trying to link the black gospel tradition um, and those kind of traditional values. She's trying to link that with her burgeoning political consciousness and the black power movement and the political activism of the day. And I think, holy, holy, especially the way that she kind of starts with it on the... um, and the, on the first night, I think that is kind of providing the context for what this is. She's putting gospel within a larger context now that people are politicized and everything. And of course, the black church was instrumental in the in um, organizing the civil rights movement in the South, well, all over the country, but organizing the civil rights movement in the 60s and everything. But by the 70s, when this was recorded, Things were a little bit different. There were a little bit more political organizations. People were um, that people were putting their energies into different activist groups and everything. So the church was beginning to slip it, to um, of being at the forefront of um, the movement for Black liberation. So I think that's what she does with Holy Holy. And the interesting thing about that is. Um, Marvin Gaye was really, really touched by her doing that because that was on his What's Going On album that was just released the year before. So she was listening to current stuff. I mean, that it was not like that was an old song or anything. And it came at a time, What's Going On was one of those make or break albums for Marvin Gaye because he basically just said to Motown, look, I'm doing my own thing. I'm taking creative control of my career. Y'all ain't teaching me no steps. Y'all ain't giving me no songs. I'm doing me, and I'm going to talk about the issues that are relevant in the world. No more of this, you know, happy teen romance shit for the pop charts. I'm doing me. I'm talking about my life and what's important to me. So, you know, sometimes it's so easy because we see things, how things have turned out, that we just sort of superimpose that on the moment. But at the time when Aretha did Holy Holy, Marvin was still in that moment of wondering whether or not that risk that he took with his career was worth it, um, or whether or not he was going to lose his career. Of course, he had, he got hits from what's going on, so that wasn't the issue. But nobody was proclaiming it the classic that it has now become over time. He was still in that moment of wondering what was going to happen. And this is what he said to um, David Ritz, the writer David Ritz, who he's working with on his um, biography at the time. He said of um, Aretha's version, he said, I was stunned by the beauty of her interpretation. What's going on hadn't been out all that long because it came out of controversy, that whole business of Motown not thinking it was commercial. I was still a little battle wary. I told my label that I'd never record again if they didn't release it. I won the fight. And the public seemed to be validating my stance. And that record of her recording it was um, a little a validation for that. So I just think that's so, um, I just think that that's just such a wonderful moment. Now, another one of my favorites is How I Got Over. Sometimes I look at songs, I get a lot of inspiration as a writer from songs and just thinking about what makes a song work. And when I think of How I Get Over, How I Got Over, I just think that is like the perfect title you could not get a more perfect title because if you're faced with a song called how i got over well who don't want to know how to get over you know what i mean so like you're almost forced to listen to the song or read the book or whatever because we are out here struggling everybody wants to know how to get over so i just think that that just even on that level um how, how i got over is just such a um important song for me but then you know this that's just my song on the album it's those sanctified claps and that energy and everything so that's one of my moments um climbing higher mountains climbing higher mountains beautiful medley melody a medley is something else medley we're actually going to get to a medley but we are talking about right now a melody like um homegirl from josie and the pussycats uh and that's one of those songs. I just think a climbing 
entire mountain song is so black. Like, I don't know a lot about white gospel songs or anything like that, so I can't really make the comparison. But I know that there are a lot of black gospel songs that are about obstacles. Because I think as black people, after all we've been through, we know they're going to be obstacles. You know, so it's not a song of, um tripping through, the, you know, I'm skipping through the tulip field that God made me, you know, it's I'm climbing higher mountains because you know there's going to be a mountain. We, we won't believe a song that's talking about there ain't no obstacles because we know that there are obstacles, but we have to believe that God has given us the strength to face them and eventually to conquer them, no matter how big they might be. Um, and it reminds me of one of my favorite, 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 favorite gospel songs. Lord, Don't Move That Mountain by former caravan Inez Andrews. This song gets me through so much. I mean, this is one of those songs that stays in a little gospel playlist. I have my gospel playlist that's abroad. I my, and then I have my, in case of emergency, break glass gospel playlist where, like, I'm on my last you know, trying to hold on, and I just need to hear something to revive my spirit. And Lord, don't move, mo- mo- don't move that mountain is on that because the lyrics are, "Lord, don't move my mountain. Just give me the strength to climb." I mean, that's one of those things I listen to on them hard days. Now, quiet as kept, I actually wouldn't mind the Lord moving some of my mountains. Like right about now, I could, yeah, you could take, you could clear this view a little bit. You could take some of these mountains away, but. If that ain't going to happen, I'm glad that I have the faith um, that I'll have the strength to deal with it. So, again, I just love those songs. Um, And Amazing Grace, you know, perhaps the best song ever written by a slave owner, side eye inserted. Um, But her performance of it is just such a virtuoso performance. Just um, And just, again, that was one of those moments where I'm just staring at her mouth and her eyes and just looking at the movement of her eyes and everything as she's doing it just to how she's constructing this um soaring performance um in real time that's just those are the special things that I get from the movie just watching it happen and that's why I'll get it on blu-ray or whatever ray happens to be the ray by the time it comes out you know, digital only, or I don't know, God knows what they're putting out these days. But anyway, that's why I will have it in some form, because I will have to just be able to rewatch those moments of um, of of the creativity just rising in, inside of her. Um, and then Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which is a medley of Precious Lord. Um, oh, pronounced... Lord, 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 it's a medley of Precious Lord, Take My Hand, and Carol King's You've Got a Friend. And those harmonies, those harmonies when they go and I'll be there, I've never heard anything more beautiful in my life. That is just, that's the gospel spirit to me. That's what, talking about raise, using voices to raise the spirit to me, if I had to show if an alien came down and after watching all these Marvel movies, I'm not entirely not sure there ain't none. But if an alien came down and said, what gospel means, how, how does gospel sound when it's supposed to lift your spirit high? I would play that medley so they could hear them harmonies um, on that. And I'll be there. So moving on to other aspects of the film, the music was directed by the legendary James Cleveland, often known as the king of gospel music, and he lived with Aretha's family um, when she was younger and helped her learn um, different chords and stuff on the um, piano. And one interesting thing that I did not know, and then they remained close um, throughout the years, even after he moved out, but one thing I did not know, because James Cleveland was a writer— but he wrote a secular song for her that appears on one of her early Columbia albums. He wrote this song called Nobody Like You. And it's a really lovely song. It's a really sad ballad about pining for a lost love. So if you, you should definitely take check that out. It's never Nobody Like You. Um, I'll try to remember to put these on. I'm traveling tomorrow, so I might not be able to put these up. But um, I'll try to put them on the website at some point, craigspoplife.com. Because that's a really beautiful song, and I did not know that that was that that um occurred. And he founded the Gospel Music Workshop of America. And the thing about James Cleveland is he really brought the sound of big choirs into gospel music. I think it's so—we take it for granted, and we just think that that is the sound of 
gospel music. But gospel wasn't always where you had three gazillion people in a choir giving that just huge background sound. But he put together the Gospel Workshop of America where he would work with choirs, and he was known at one point to be able to arrange up to 300 singers in a couple of days. And so he's just so um, influential because if you think about it, especially if you think about gospel's influence on pop, that is gospel's influence on pop, right? Gospel's influence on pop is essentially having a big-ass choir behind you singing whatever they happen to be singing um, in your little old pop song. Like, think of for my old heads, think of foreigners, I want to know what love is. You know, that big choir sound, that's nothing but James Cleveland. You know, Madonna's Like a Prayer. Um, or for you new news, like, Lady Gaga's born this way. Just that huge choir sound that comes from, that's part of something that um, James Cleveland really set off. Or just, you know, whenever there's a, whenever somebody wants to be taken serious, some pop artist wants to be taken seriously on an award show, you know, eventually they're going to bring out the black people in robes um, singing. So again, Cleveland is partly the reason for all that. And you know, one thing I think is really interesting about Cleveland that I did not know um, until recently is that he started out his career, because a lot of people started out, there's a whole gospel circuit, like where you would just go around churches all across the country and sing. It was kind of like the religious version of the Chitlin circuit, you know, where the Motown acts were like playing the Apollo and the Howard Theater and doing all that kind of stuff. Gospel acts were playing various churches, and it was it was a grind grind. And James Cleveland got into it as a child, and he was a boy soprano. So can you imagine the life this man lived to start out as a boy soprano? And he, by the time you hear Amazing Grace, he is the graveliest of gravels. You know, so like that is some hard, hard living. But that comes from performing constantly all those times on the church circuit, blowing out his voice. And then plus he was a lifelong um, smoker. So that couldn't have helped. But um, well, I would love to hear some recordings of James Cleveland as a boy soprano. That would just be really interesting. Um, but James just played hard. Everything he did was hard. That's, and that's why I love his, the way he, he doesn't sing a lyric. He just attacks it. You know, he growls it at you. He just wakes up your spirit, you know, just with the, you know. Um, but he even played the piano hard. They said that he would consistently play the piano so hard that he would break the foot pedals. You know, just stomping on the foot pedals that he would break those and they would have to constantly replace those. So that's some hard ass playing. And the other thing about James Cleveland now is that that we're gonna be grown. We, this is a grown folks podcast. We haven't grown folk talk, okay? Um, he was a closeted gay man, and part of the larger contingent of gay men and women who played a formative role in this thing we call gospel music, um, which is still very unacknowledged. But gay men and lesbians were all up and through. Um, the gospel world, like I said, even, you know, Clara Ward was bisexual. I mean, it was just a thing that was just known, but not, I mean, you know, just accepted in that way, tolerated. You know, and I, I think um, Mahalia Jackson, she was just known to hang with the queen. She surrounded herself with gay men. And I think her attitude toward her gay friends is kind of um, speaks volumes about the way gay men and lesbians were accepted into community, in, into the, were accepted, but not really accepted. Um, so she would always say when somebody would ask about um, one of her friends, she said, oh, he's a poor sissy, but he loved the Lord. You know, so she, so, you know, she embraced because he loved the Lord, but she felt she pitied him because he was a quote unquote um, poor sissy. And one of my favorite Mahalia stories is um, one time she and a group of gay friends, and these were people that like my, her, her hairstylist, people that might be her her musicians, just all throughout her whole entourage. But anyway, they were driving and they were pulled over by the police on the way to a Chicago concert. And then Mahalia, you know, just laid it on thick because she was trying to get to that concert. She was trying to get her coin and she didn't want to be late. So she was like, Officer Darling, I'm Mahalia Jackson, the world's greatest gospel singer. I'm going to a concert. Now, the officer was like, well, if you're such a holy lady, why are you in the car with all these men? 
And she said, Officer Darling, these ain't men, they sissies. So, and, you know, believe it or not, that worked. And the cop let her go. But then her friends were hot. Their friends were like, what? Why Why'd you, you have to do us like that? And she said, well, cocksucker, what the fuck did you expect me to say? So, because Haley could cuss. And she could really sit in there and read with the girl. So, <laughs> I love that story. Uh, so, the, But the queer influence, like I said, is, while widely unacknowledged, is so important that um, author Anthony Helbert who wrote The Gospel Sound, an essential book on gospel, and also The Fan Who Knew Too Much, which is a really essential book on the gay aspect of gospel. He wrote that without lesbian and gay men, lesbians and gay men, there would be no gospel music. So I really hope I live to see a day where this is finally acknowledged, where we can see like documentaries, miniseries, and stuff on this aspect of um of gospel music because gospel music is just too important to black culture and to the black tradition for us to erase these people that were responsible for founding it. That's, you know, I'm like doing the Ayanla voice, not on my watch. So I, I, that's something that I'm going to put some energy into at some point is just really making sure that we talk about these people and talk about their full lives and just put it out there. The church folk can still try to ignore it, but the history will not be erased from the people who want it and the people who need it, um, other black, lesbian, and gay men particularly. So, And if you want a fictional account of the gay gospel world, you should check out James Baldwin's Just Above My Head, which is my favorite novel by him. But, child, you know, this being back in the day and everything like that, that's not to say that James Cleveland was not problematic. You definitely do not want to hashtag me to this brother. Because throughout his life, he had all of these so-called adopted sons. And he died in February 1991. They said it was congested, congestive heart failure, but... The word on the street was that it was complications due to AIDS. And shortly after his death, one of these so-called sons sued the estate, um, alleging that Cleveland had exposed him to, to AIDS. And the man, you know, talked very much in detail about their sexual relationship and caused it and, and called it consensual. So there's a whole lot to unpack there, but I'll just leave you on the um, Cleveland tip with... Just listen to his song, Touch Me. That's my favorite song by him. It's a duet between him and a younger male singer. The man's name isn't coming to mind right now. But just the interplay of their voices, It's if that's not a love song, then I don't know what a love song is. And I've been writing about music. Like I said, like I always say, and throw it down people's but in order people's faith, I don't write about music for more than two decades. If that's not a love song, I don't know what a love song is. So check out James Cleveland's Touch Me. Um, now let's talk about the second night that's shown in the film when the legendary Clara Ward shows up. Now Clara was like a surrogate mother to Aretha because of course Aretha's mother died um, right around the time that she was 10. And Aretha modeled her singing after Clara because Clara would come over to the house and would sing with the, the Clara Ward singers. And um, she got a lot from the way that Clara, Clara sang a song in terms of her phrasing and everything. But Clara was also quite the flamboyant performer. So Aretha also got, like when you see Aretha on stage, when you saw Aretha on stage throw a whole fur on the floor right before she began to sing, that was what something she got from Clara because that's the way Clara wrote. And Never Grow Old, which is um, also in the film, that was one of Clara's signature songs. And it was also one of the first songs that Aretha um, used to perform when her father started taking her around to churches as a teenager. And like I said, the gospel world was a little wild now. So you can find a recording that Aretha did of Never Grow Old. It's a beautiful recording. It's really worth trying to find the um, teenage recording and compare it with the recording on Amazing Grace. But anyway, you can find a recording, and she did that when she was 15, when she incidentally had already had one child now and was pregnant with another. So that's life on the gospel road back then. Um, but I think this performance is so moving. 
the, the teenage performance is just so moving because at first on one hand you're like what does this teenage girl have to do have to what does she know about never grow old but given that she had just lost her mother about five years earlier she must have really had a keener sense of mortality than um most people her age and just the song about you know just being reunited in this land where people don't die i imagine that that was particularly um sort of heartening for her and but I just love the relationship between Aretha and Claire I think this would make like a great book or film or something like that um because they were so respectful of each other as artists Uh, you saw Aretha give respect to Claire in the film but after Claire died um they found a her private diary and she had written this of Aretha she called she called her my baby Aretha and she says um this is writing about Aretha when she was like in her teens or 20s she writes she doesn't know how good she is she doubts herself someday she'll go to the moon I love that girl so I just thought that's so um not that that's even because you know sometimes you say something to people just because you know people need to hear some things but in order to get over and that's fine but um these were her private thoughts about Aretha that I thought were so sweet and then one time um when Aretha's early recordings with Columbia weren't selling and she was really frustrated by that War told her you just hang in there. You've got everything it takes to go to the top. You'll have them hanging onto your every word, your every note. And of course that turned out to be that turned out to be true. But you know, you get the sense even in her having to tell Aretha that some of Aretha's insecurities about her talents and I think you kind of see that a little bit even in the Amazing Grace performance. It's like she's sure of herself, but there's also this other layer where maybe she's not so sure. And you see that interplay. You see her having to kind of work, warm herself up and work through that. Um, you know, the really, the, to me, I mean, of course, there's no plot to the film or anything like that. To me, the drama and the plot is just looking at Aretha and seeing her journey to bring out what is one of the most celebrated performances of all time. And, it's her journey that you see in her face that is the whole plot. That's the hero's journey of that film. That's the whole plot. She's Luke Skywalker going through the whole shit or whatever. I don't want to use the sexist example, but um, or, uh, just a male example, but you get my point. Um, so I know it meant a lot to Aretha for Clara to be there. And Clara was also really ailing at the time of Amazing Grace. She had suffered several strokes um, some of them were described as massive. She, I mean, she was having all sorts of hard times. Like she collapsed on stage when she was performing in Miami. Um, so she was really not in great health. She looks great in the film, but she really was not in great health. And sadly, almost exactly one year after the Amazing Grace recording, Aretha would be singing Never Grow Old at Clara's funeral. She died at 48 as a result of all of those strokes. So, again, um, just another another reason why this film captures such a moment in time. Because a lot of these people ain't here no more. Aretha ain't here no more. James ain't here no more. You know. Um, And then in the movie, after Clara comes out, Aretha's father, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, is introduced. But the gag is... We're supposed to just kind of pretend that and everybody in the audience kind of has to pretend that Reverend Franklin and Miss Ward hadn't been in a decades-long non-married relationship that everybody knew about, but of course nobody would talk about because that wouldn't be accepted in the church to talk about it, but everybody knew about it. All these open secrets going on in the church, whether it's the gay and, and lesbian issue, whether it's the you know, shacking up without being married or whatever they were doing. I guess you don't call it shacking up when it's grown-ass people, but I'm just saying, you know, these are some of the things that weren't talked about. And the relationship between Reverend C.L. Franklin and Clara was very volatile. It involved a lot of abuse um, and infidelity and thing. But then Clara also had her share of female lovers as well. So there was a lot going on. Um... And one of the things I thought when I was watching the film is when um, Reverend Franklin says something about Aretha called me last night and told me to be here. So I had to jump on a plane and be here. I'm like, man, this is the second night. 
So she didn't call you. I mean, you ain't know she was doing this performance. She just called. Well, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because, you know, she's supposed to be so close to her daddy and everything. So you have to take a sip of drink. I have to drink something since I haven't had anything to drink all day. Sorry about that. But um, I was like, that's awfully weird to me. Uh, this whole big ass production of Aretha going back to church and her father didn't know. But I researched it and she, she truly just forgot to call him. So she called him up the night after she did the first show and like, Daddy, I'm doing the show. You have to get here. So he really did have to jump on a flight from Detroit to L.A. in order to make it to the show. So interesting. So, of course, I had to read up on other stuff that was going along around at the time. And these are five things that I think you might not know about Aretha and the Amazing Grace Sessions because I did not know them before I looked them up myself. Um, child, I hope they're five. My notes are all mixed up, but... We gonna get through it. It's fine. These are here are a number of things. Let me just count right quick. Hold on. Look, this is a number. It'll it'll be the right number in the podcast description. Right now, it um is just um <laughs> it's an indeterminate number of things that I learned about the recording of this fantastic album. Um, one thing that I thought was I was literally today years old when I learned this. So okay, so the choir people and James Cleveland choir people they hire, they handled the music, right? The keyboards and the stuff like that. But the Atlantic producer Jerry Wexler wanted the tracks to have a beat. He said that he was determined to sneak some of the devil's rhythm section into the church. So he wanted Aretha to use her regular band for the Amazing Grace sessions. Now, around that time, her regular band consisted of um, a group of players that were led by um, the legendary saxophonist King Curtis. She had done a number of live albums using his band, and um, she was very, that that was kind of, those were her people at the time. But I didn't realize in August, the year before, was of course Amazing Grace was done in January, this is August the year before, Curtis was stabbed to death when he got into an argument between um, two, you know, he got caught up in an argument between two drug dealers in front of his apartment in New York. So I was just stunned when I learned this because imagine how devastating that was. Um, because it, first of all, she had already experienced such loss in her life with the loss of her mother, and then now she experienced the sudden loss of this musician that she'd been working with that was leading her band and then knowing that she had to pick up with the rest of the band and do a live album just five months later you know just all these things I think I can't help but think that all of these things play into the emotion that we get from the performance because how could she not be thinking about her band leader that is not there and she's singing these songs um, and she also sang Never Grow Old at his funeral and the other thing about it in terms of the emotionality of the um, performance is that it was coming up on the 20th anniversary of her mother's death because her mother died in March and this was in January and that would be the 20th anniversary. So I think there were a lot of things um, going on in her mind when she was um, when she was doing that. Now this is – so is that my, how many did I do? That was number one. That was one. Okay, so here's my number two. Um, now, this is some black-ass shit. So, like, okay, so when James Cleveland lived with Aretha and taught her piano and did all this kind of stuff, it was kind of unclear about why he left, but he left suddenly. Turns out he got kicked out the house because he ate some banana pudding that the Reverend was saving for himself. And the Reverend got mad and put his black ass out on the street for eating his banana pudding. <laughs> nah. And the, and they even remained close after that, but that was but that was some banana pudding beef. As disgusting as that sounds, that was beef over bana- banana pudding. So <laughs> don't go over nobody. If, some, if you're staying in somebody's house, don't be eating their leftovers. It's just the words of the wise. Um, another thing I thought was interesting that I didn't know about, but I thought it was really um, and this was isn't directly related to Amazing Grace. It's just related to her singing in general but the whole debate always about whether or not why she was singing secular music when she came up in the church and everything so she actually wrote an op-ed in the new york amsterdam news explaining her reasons for singing secular music and i thought this plays into a lot of the choices that she ends up making with amazing grace she wrote 
I don't think that in any manner I did the Lord a disservice when I made up my mind two years ago to switch over. So this was very early in her career, around the Columbia days. After all, the blues is a music born out of slavery days, sufferings of my people. Every song in the blues vein has a story to tell of love, frustrations, and heartaches. I think that because true democracy hasn't overtaken us here, that we as a people find the original blues songs still have meaning for us. And that is really what she does bring to um, the Amazing Grace. There is that sense of transcendence that comes with gospel, the sense that we're going to get over. But you very much, she very much acknowledges the struggle um, in that process. So and that comes through songs like Climbing Every Mountain and everything like that. And so that's clearly where her head was at in terms of this isn't all about some, all what I'm singing right now is connected to what is going on right outside these doors in LA. I think that was very much um, the kind of message that she was trying to convey. Um, and then, what was this? So, okay, so I, maybe this had to do with the whole King Curtis thing. I don't know. But um, right before the Amazing Grace sessions, she and her boyfriend at the time, a man named Ken Cunningham, and the band vacationed to Barbados to rest up. And this is where the cover picture of the original album, this is where that comes from. Um, she and Cunningham went to this place called Saint Lord, Sam Lord's Castle, which was a mansion that was built in the 1820s. And that's when she dressed in her Afrocentric robe and headdress and took the picture. And this was another way of her trying to bring the contemporary black struggle into the gospel world because, of course, it would have been much more traditional for her to be in a church robe or whatever on the cover of this gospel album and no she's in this afrocentric headdress very much reflecting the black is beautiful um edict of the times and then um perhaps the craziest what number i'm on now y'all i tried i try to get my numbers right i try to do podcasts you know they try to say oh people like lists people like numbers and lists but the list don't matter it doesn't work if you don't remember the number, if you don't have the number of the things that you're going to talk about. But whatever, y'all. I know y'all ride with me, so I thank you for dealing with my craziness. But this is the of the craziest shit that I learned about Amazing Grace. This is by far the craziest of the crazy shit. So, okay, so the history of the film is that Warner Brothers hired Sidney Pollack to do the film. But right afterwards, he did the Barbara Streisand, Robert Redford movie, The Way We Were, one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Um, so, And that film just blew the fuck up. So he got caught up and distracted by that film's success, which just put, pulled him away from finishing up Amazing Grace. And that's one of the reasons why the film was never finished and the audio was never really synced. And that's why... It's 2019, and we're just now seeing the shit. But this is a crazy... Okay, so originally, Warner Brothers' marketing plan for Amazing Grace was to release it as part of a black exploitation double feature with, wait for it, Superfly. Can, can you even imagine? That was somebody's marketing plan to release Amazing Grace with Superfly. I mean, imagine the church folks all dressed up, you know... <laughs> ready to hear, ready to see a good church service and having to sit through Superfly in order to get to Aretha or the other way around. Like, who the fuck is in the mood to see a movie about a pimp and a cocaine dealer after watching Amazing Grace? I mean, that obviously is some tone deaf, you know, I'm just going to say it's some tone deaf white shit because who, who in their black right mind would think that that would be a good combination? I mean, back in my day, I went to plenty of double features, but they generally made sense. You know, I caught quite a few sparkle mahogany double features. You know, you got the singing and everything like that. But Superfly Amazing Grace, maybe it was better it didn't come out back in the day. So um, that's essential. Oh, the other thing that, that um, I think is interesting is that it's still Aretha's only platinum album that she recorded for Atlantic, which is the label where she had all of her biggest hits. It's her only platinum album. It's now it's double platinum album. But that's largely because uh, she had tons of gold albums, so it was the only platinum one, meaning a million sales. And that's largely because 
the other ones were largely marketed as singles, where people bought Do Right Woman and um, they bought Dr. Feelgood and everything like that, and they had those as singles. Maybe they went ahead and bought the album. If they, or they had been slow in buying the singles, they bought the album. But those weren't really packaged as thematic albums. They were albums with a bunch of singles on them and some other covers and added stuff. But Amazing Grace, it didn't even have a single at first, I don't believe. You can check me if I'm wrong. But Amazing Grace um, was an album you had to get to experience. You were getting an entire church service on this, this double album. So that was something that you had to buy. Um, the other interesting thing about the popularity of Amazing Grace and how it became sort of embedded in black culture is that Atlantic needed this to be a hit, you know, because they did not want Aretha had such a strain of hits, you know, gold, all her albums had gone gold and everything. So they didn't want this one to go double ten. You know what I mean? They didn't want this one to go dime. They wanted it to to sell. So they really pushed it hard at radio. And one of their... Um, one of their radio promotion people convinced a lot of black radio stations to play Amazing Grace right at the end of the night. Because a lot of black stations at the time played gospel music at night right before the morning show. So a lot of people grew up or just were raised or, you know, through their adulthood hearing Amazing Grace as soon as Aretha's Amazing Grace song as soon as they got up before it went into the morning show. And so that just really started embedding at least that song into black culture as a whole. So all of those things I think are very interesting in, in um, helping us know why things are important and how they get to be um, so culturally important to us. Um, so basically all this to say, go see Amazing Grace. It's a wonderful document about her bridging her gospel background with her burgeoning political awareness. And as critic Martha Anthony Mark Anthony Neal argues, and I think this is very true, is that it also signals the end of an era when the black church was the most prominent and influential institution in the black community. Those days were slipping away. And as he writes, Franklin's tribute to the black church in an era when its influence was diminishing celebrated its extraordinary role in building communities of cultural and political resistance and recovery. So again, it's a just a really moving capture of a time that was just was so unique and it's just really a privilege to be able to see that to see that moment especially after all this time um and so with that i'm signing off um maybe one of these days i will get to talking about more than one or two things again but you know, there's just so much to say about this particular topic. But um, with that, I just want to ask you, please take a moment. You can even do it while I'm still talking, wrapping up. I'll talk slowly so that you have time. But if you could just subscribe to the podcast, that really helps. If you could just rate it, that really, really helps. If you could share it with a friend, that just really, really helps. And I do very much appreciate it. And so until next week, you know how we do. Be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> okay, I love y'all. Bye.